At LiveGirl, our mission is to build confident leaders and contribute to a world free from racial and gender inequality. We are called to work together to create an anti-racist society and build leaders who listen to and understand lives different from their own. We need to stand together, help each other, love one another, and most importantly, take action. This will require learning, unlearning, and listening to, then amplifying the voices of color and experience. And today, we are honored to amplify the voice of an extraordinary black business entrepreneur. Welcome to episode 11, Be a Trailblazer, sponsored by JPM Private Bank. Welcome, welcome everyone. Well, Liv, today we start talking about some good news. The House just passed a bipartisan bill to create a Women's History Museum in D.C. as part of the Smithsonian Institute. That's amazing. Um, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney has been advocating for a Women's History Museum since 1998 because she said, As I looked around the National Mall, I saw museums dedicated to air, space, spies, law enforcement, textiles, the postal services, arts, which are all enriching institutes. But I found myself asking, where are the women? Where are the women indeed? Unfortunately, women have been left out of the telling of our nation's history. And it's so important, Liv, as you know, that young girls Mm -hmm. understand the impact that women have had in the shaping of our country. While there was bipartisan support, it's frustrating to know that there were dissenters who commented that women should be honored only alongside men. And the reality is that they're not. You can look at the lack of national landmarks or textbook entries dedicated to women and see that very clearly. And you know, Liv, I say this data point a lot, but only 3% of U.S. history book text relates to women. So obviously, a women's history museum is is needed. And that's actually why we're also especially excited to announce this week's guest, who has literally made history. Stacy Tisdale, a more than 20-year-old, 20-year veteran TV broadcast financial journalist and financial behavior expert, is one of the first women and the first African-American to report from the New York Stock Exchange as a reporter for Dow Jones Emmy Award-winning Wall Street Journal Television. She then went on to become one of the first on-air reporters for CBS Market Watch and business and personal finance correspondent for CBS News, The Early Show, CBS Evening News, and CBS Radio. She is now the CEO and president of Mind Money Media and was named by Top 100 Magazine as one of 2019's Top 100 People in Finance. Wow. Yeah. Well, welcome to Confidence, Daisy. It's a pleasure to be here, and I am more than 20 years old. <laughs> <laughs> barely. Barely. That was, that was a compliment. Yeah. Barely. Barely. <laughs> well, your bio is so incredibly impressive. Um, I don't even know where to begin, but why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about your background and what inspired you to, career, to pursue a career in financial journalism. It's interesting. I studied um, international finance in college, and I got an internship at a commodities firm on Wall Street, and I worked there for a few years, and I was able to serve as a cash manager and um, managed about $90 million a day of the company's money. And that was very interesting for me to see the power of money kind of Mm -hmm. from the inside out in terms of what the companies did with it, how it affected the global economy. And that gave me a very interesting perspective. And when that company went under, which was no reflection of my cash management skills, (laughs) (laughs) um, I had to decide what I really wanted to do. And I loved writing. Mm -hmm. I think I came out of the womb writing. 
and I knew finance. So I literally picked up the phone and called the Wall Street Journal and I told them that and they uh, they bought it. <laughs> and they hired me to work at a newswire service called Tellery. That will date me. And um, I, I had an interest in television and they had a television department. And I um, inquired and I was able to move there as really starting from the ground level as a production assistant. And what I love so much about what you're doing is you talk about the importance of mentors. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough to have my very first Boston Television, who I saw for the first time about a week and a half ago in 20 years, um, be the right mentor. Mm -hmm. And what happened was a group of us came in, we were all very young, and he made us learn everything from editing to producing to, you know, holding us to really high writing standards. And he gave us opportunity and was an there's mentoring and there's sponsoring someone who really, mm -hmm. then the difference is a mentor, you know, provides wonderful advice. A sponsor really ties their fortune to yours and right, really, yeah. you know, goes to bat for you. And he did that for us and for um, me. And when I told him I wanted to start telling my own stories, he gave me the opportunity to train to be on camera. Um, Dow Jones put the first camera on the, at the New York Stock Exchange and he gave me the opportunity to report from there. And so I was there for seven years, and I left to go on to CBS Market Watch. And that was a partnership between CBS and a company, Market Watch, to provide business news. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was um, life-changing in terms of, from reporting so much of the business side, I started reporting from the people side mm -hmm. of money. And it was just a journalist a dream because I had to do every show at CBS Business News from, you know, CBS This Morning to CBS Evening News with Dan Rather to all the radio shows and everything every in between because I was the business correspondent. And I was there for several years. And then I left there and went to um, a tech startup called Tech TV mm -hmm. in San Francisco. I was at CNN. Uh, for several years and by this time and I share all that with you not to tell you my resume but by this time I had had such a unique vantage point to see how people relate right. to money yeah. that I could see that something wasn't adding up mm -hmm. that despite all of the knowledge that was out there about money and all the information I mean I saw how much information we were yeah. translating people were so unhappy mm. you know money was causing so much unhappiness mm -hmm. anxiety stress mm -hmm. you know a few things work simpler than money don't spend more than you have don't borrow more than you can afford yeah. to pay back don't invest more than you can afford to lose but on the other side money leading cause of divorce leading mm -hmm. cause of anxiety oh, depression yeah. substance abuse even suicide so i could see that you know there's more here mm -hmm. than yeah. what's going on so um, I remember I was literally on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange one day reporting for CNN. And my uh, first story was like, you know, here's five tips to help you get out of credit card debt. Right. And my very next story was that, you know, the average American family has like $10,000 in credit card debt. And I know in my own life at the time, I, um, you know, I, no one knew more about money than me, but I didn't have a great, you know, financial right. life. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I was just like, what is it? about money that we can't get it right and my mother used to always say that instead of dna i have w-h-y which is why i'm probably a journalist i just have to know how things work yeah. so i set out on what i had no idea was going to be a six-year research project into what drives financial behavior mm -hmm. and what i did is i just dug in i you know started my research with financial people because that seemed to make sense but then i 
quickly realized that the answers that I was looking for in terms of which I was financial behavior really didn't have a whole lot to do with money. Mm-hmm. And I was being pulled much t- more towards psychologists, sociologists, even you know spiritual advisors to find out you know what's really going on. And then the problem became pretty clear. When people have uh, trouble with money, they go straight to the numbers. Mm-hmm. I need to earn yeah. more, right. save more, right. invest mm-hmm. more. But the real causes of our financial experience have got nothing to do with numbers. Mm-hmm. And what I realized is that you know, everyone I'd met in my career through my life's experience, and I've interviewed, you know, everyone from, you know, starving people in Africa to presidents of the United mm-hmm. States and more, but they were kind of saying the same three things in different ways when it came to yeah. money. And I call them the big three money scripts. I use the term scripts, just like an actor rehearses scripts. Mm-hmm. And when it's time to yeah. perform, they kindly blind, blindly follow those scripts. And we blindly follow our money scripts. And they really revolve on childhood scripts, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the way we see money handled or not, discussed or not, you know, managed or not, invested Mm -hmm. or not. Um, When we're growing up, literally informs our brain about, you know, okay, so this is supposed to be what's done with money. So you really have to look at those, you know, early messages that you're getting and see if they are in line with who you want to be or if you should change some. And I'll give you an example of that. I had a um, makeup artist once, I think when I was at CNN, and I, um, she was at the time probably in her early 30s. And she just bought a condo, mm-hmm. and she you know, was very excited to be a homeowner at that age, but she wasn't very happy because in addition to a very demanding work schedule, she was spending her weekends you know, mowing lawns, you know, taking care of the house, doing, you know, all of these other things. So she didn't have much of a life outside of this house. And we were talking about it one day, and um, it just kind of came up in the conversation that since she was a little kid, her grandmother had said, save save your dollar so you can buy a house. Mm-hmm. Save your dollar so you can buy a house. So she had this message going on in right. her head. This is what I'm supposed to do with dollars, and she did. But she was at a point in her life where she wanted to be meeting people. She wanted to be doing different things. So she didn't even realize that was going on, but that message didn't serve her. So it's not about blaming mom and dad or whoever, because they had their own money scripts to deal with. But it's about, you know, just uh, this, uh, this all comes down to awareness. And that's, we'll get into, there's almost a, you know, money can send you an almost a spiritual search for, you know, to get to the core of who you really are. And, um, you know, those childhood impressions leave a, are a big role. So we all have to look at that. Script number two is social scripts. And those really come in three forms. There's social scripting about, you know, how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to have, all those messages mm-hmm, we get mm-hmm. that give us that pressure to keep up with the Joneses is the mm-hmm. saying. The thing about those things is you have to bring a lot of compassion to it. Because um, I'm, I'm a... Um, neuroscience statistic nut, which I will try to tone down a little bit in this interview. But in 1812, Leon Festinger came up with the social comparison theory. Our brains actually give us our sense of self by comparing us mm-hmm. to things and people around us. So it's very yeah. human. So again, the dance is awareness. So there's social scripting around, you know, what we're supposed right. to have, what we're supposed to give yeah. our kids. There's also social scripting around gender. And 
Um, since the beginning of time, for example, men have been conditioned that they're supposed to provide and protect. Right. Mm-hmm. And their brains actually value them by how they do that. Women have been scripted to be more nurturers. Mm-hmm. And we see this, you know, this long-standing conditioning even reflected in society through things like the pay gap. It's, you know, men need more money to take care of their families. We've, you know, paid them more right, right, throughout right. time. And um, an interesting story, I have a financial education program called Winning Plays, which when it came out in 2010, we piloted in high schools in Bridgeport, Connecticut, Dallas, Texas, and um, some schools in New York. And I sat like a fly on the wall at, um, I believe it was Harding High School in Bridgeport, almost like dressed like a student just to see how it went when the teacher was right. trying to teach it. So they're at the lesson on gender and money. And the lesson starts by um, looking at a case study of how a man and woman are treated differently when they walk into a car dealership. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Pretty obvious. The woman's going to get higher rates. She's going to get, you know, Mm -hmm. higher loans, the whole nine Mm -hmm. yards because of that. um, Our social conditioning that women don't know as much about money. So everyone could kind of see the women, you know, the women thing. But when I have people examine men... We start with a case study that Cambridge University did that found that six weeks after unemployment, men actually start going into a physiological depression. Mm -hmm. They actually start to chemically change because of that whole provide and protect thing. So the teacher is explaining this to the kids, and this boy raises his hand. And he said, "Um, maybe that's why my father left. Mm-hmm. And the teacher's like, "What do you mean?" And he, because they'd all been, you know, schooled on how, you know, how big a role conditioning yeah. plays. She said, "Well, if the one thing his brain thinks he's supposed to do, he couldn't do. Maybe he figured we were better off without him." Right. Yeah. And then this girl raised her hand, and she's like, "You know, in lions and in other animal groups, when the male starts taking resources from the tribe, they do leave. It's like human behavior." So that makes a really bigger social statement about when you look at some groups where they, uh, they, you know, experience things like systemic racism, discrimination mm-hmm. that affects their ability to attain income, you notice that there is a migration yeah. and there's cultures of men away from the groups. So the questions we have to ask ourselves are, what other ways mm-hmm. can you contribute? What other ways can you provide? And we have to really make men feel confident in how important they are to that family unit outside of mm-hmm. this, you know, money. Right. The monetary point. But those um, things are very interesting. And also um, in social scripts, we, there's a lot of scripting around um, race and culture. There's certain groups that are perceived to be good with money. There's certain groups that are perceived to be bad with money. Um, we'll talk in a moment about black wealth because there's an interesting story in the history of black wealth in America that we can all learn from. But African Americans, for example, are perceived to be bad with money. Mm-hmm. And the question for all of this scripting is nuts, which brings us to the third and final money script, which is what I call the songs we play in our head, those messages we tell ourselves, like, investing's only for the rich. I'll never be good with right, money. Right. Managing money mm-hmm. is a man's job. We blindly follow and act on those messages. So the question has to become, when we look at all of these things, and it's not hard to do, why do I fit the profile? It's not so much the biggest, you know, the big social issues like Congresswoman Mahoney, you know, getting that women's museum open, like changing laws about the pay gap and stuff. Those bigger social issues are something we should all work on. 
But the question has to become, so many of us fit these stereotypes. So that's when we have to go, you know, bring awareness right. into right. the equation yeah. and figure out what messages are pushing our buttons. Right. There's so much to unpack there. Yeah. I'm not <laughs> quite sure where I, to begin. I know this is but, such a light conversation. No, it, I'm it, sobbing. And it's, it's so incredible. Your approach with looking at the psychology yeah. of money is so unique and brings so yeah. much value to the discussion. And I can relate to everything you're saying with the social scripts because we actually recently had a roundtable with some high school women um, at Live Girl, and we asked them just to write down um, when, when we say the word money, what comes to yeah. their, their mind. And we then we went around the room, and pretty much to the T, they were all very negative adjectives like anxious, you know, um, need more of it. Um, and what it made me realize is, for, these are young women. Why, why should they have these anxieties about money? It's because they have been conditioned, scripted, yeah. scripted for them. And now they've internalized them. And so I think you're absolutely right about looking at the psychology and creating that awareness so that mm-hmm. we can spark conversation on this. And there's um, so much more to it. And this is where it gets fun and interesting <laughs> and beautiful for me. Um, Women, for example, control the majority of the world's wealth. They control the majority of the world's investable assets. They will inherit so much wealth because we live longer that mm-hmm. we, we can actually could create our own economy and just <laughs> sidestep all of this. But the only people who don't seem to know that are women. Mm-hmm, because yeah. despite all of that wealth, a, a survey by, I believe it was Prudential Financial, found that only it was about 20% of women feel capable of making financial decisions. Mm-hmm. So what we're really looking at is a confidence gap. Right. Yeah. And that's where all of that conditioning comes in. And that's where what money's real function is, as I've seen it, can um, should surface. Money's greatest gift is it can really reflect back to you where you're not living in step with who you really are and what you really value. If you look at your financial choices in terms of, for women, it might be negotiating. It might be, you know, you're spending. You know, a lot of people spend so much money on some of this scripting, particularly Mm -hmm. social scripts, about things that aren't really authentic and important to them. And money can, it's almost like a... You know, I can almost like read palm read someone by looking at their financial life because you can see what they're spending their time and money on, where how they're making money, and that will tell you a lot about how they feel about themselves. So money can do that for you. So when you look in the money mirror and you see, okay, this isn't who I am or what's important to me, it gives you the opportunity to make different choices and connect with what's essential to you. So the process really begins one was self-efficacy, which we'll talk about in just a moment, your belief in your ability to achieve a goal. But two, with those goals, and this is where all financial planning should begin, you know, finding out what do I really value, what do I really, what's really important to me, and creating a plan that reflects mm-hmm. that. There's a great financial planner um, named George Kinder, who has the Kinder Institute, and he started in the 1980s, he and a group of planners started a form of planning called life planning. And what happened was a bunch of financial planners got together and they realized that at some point with their clients, they weren't talking about money anymore and they didn't have the skills to do th- to mm-hmm. deal with what mm-hmm. they were really talking about. Mm-hmm. So they started this life planning movement where um, trainers get some 
planners get training in managing that psychology aspect mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or they bring a financial psychologist mm-hmm. into their practice. And I urge anyone who works with a financial planner in any way, just keep your radar on, radar on that your planner is taking a holistic mm-hmm. approach to financial planning. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's not about numbers and you're going to get caught up in that. But I love how George starts his process with three questions, the kinder questions. Um, if you had all the money in the world, if money was never going to be an issue, you were Oprah rich, what <laughs> would you do with your life and your time mm-hmm. if you had unlimited resources? And the second is if you go to a doctor and he tells you you have five to mm-hmm. ten years left to live. It's not going to be like you're not going to suffer. Just in five to ten years, right. you're out. And how would you change your life if you knew you just had five to ten years left to live? How would you change how you spend your time? Where would you be? Who mm-hmm. would you be with? What would you be doing? And the last question, and we really hate this doctor, <laughs> but we go to the doctor and he tells us that this is it. This is your last day. So the question isn't, what would you do? The question are, what are your regrets? What are the things mm-hmm. that you wished you would have done in this precious life that's about to end in this form? And when you just thinking about those questions, it helps you kind of connect to what's right. important to you and see mm-hmm. how you're not aligning with it, how you are and aren't aligning with it. And once you get that picture, you can make the financial you know, changes that come into your life. And George has an amazing story. He's someone I did research with for my book about he had an African-American woman come into his office to start, you know, the financial planning process. And she was very anxious when she came into the office and he um, said, how can I help you? And she said, I have to save a million dollars. And he's like, okay. And he asked her what she did. She was a doctor. So in his mind, okay, maybe saving a million dollars isn't that far out of the question. And um, he started talking to her about her medicine and what was important to her. And she um, did medicine for people around the world who couldn't afford medical care. Mm -hmm. So then there's the disconnect. Why is a million dollars important to someone who's chosen to use their work for service? So then he, you know, that's when him is a good financial planner. So something's not adding up here. So he started talking to the woman about her life. And it turns out she lived with her boyfriend at the time, who was a white male. So we have this cultural conditioning in the back, of, you know, unconsciously where we think, you know, white men know everything about money, mm-hmm. that they're the financial experts. So she had that going on, and he was a stockbroker. So you can imagine right. in her mm-hmm. scripting and conditioning, he knew everything. Yeah. And this guy was very fond of saying, it takes a million dollars to raise a child these days. It takes a million dollars to raise a child these days. It takes a million dollars to raise a child these days. So then George's radar went off. This woman doesn't want a million dollars. What does she really want? A baby. Right. So he showed her that. And what's so amazing is when you're in it, you can't see it. Right. And then they started talking to her, he started talking to her about what's important to her about raising a child and how she would want to raise a child. And she um, it wasn't close to a million dollars when he thought about the experiences that he wanted, she wanted to give a child and everything. And he called me when I was writing my book and he's like, guess what? He's like, what? He's like, I just saw this woman on the street with a baby and her new boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Success. Yeah. Well, speaking of your book, 
in babies, because this book, Olivia and I were talking about this, yeah, getting yeah. ready for, for the interview. You spent six years researching this yeah. book, which, by the way, Stacy brought us all copies of her book, um, which is called The True Cost of Happiness, The Real Story Behind Managing Your Money. Um, can you just talk about that process? So you spent six years on this book. It's, and it wasn't even like I said, I'm going to set out to write a book and spend yeah. six years writing the book. I just got really curious about what drives our financial behavior. So I just started digging in right. mm-hmm. to that and you know, calling experts. And because of the places where I had worked, I had uh, tremendous access to some amazing people. Like I um, worked with Dr. Bernard Ahrens, who under the Clinton-Gore administration, he was, um, Tipper Gore had appointed him like her Surgeon General of Addictions. So it was really interesting to talk to him because um, our financial choices are kind of in that same part of our brain as addictions are. Mm -hmm. And um, how much of our, you know, that whole fear-based thinking. Right. And I... um, it just kept growing. I went, you know, I started looking, talking a lot to psychologists. I started talking about sociologists. I started by seeing there was some connection to awareness. Like there has to be, you have to be aware of your patterns right. and stuff. So I remember spending a lot of time trying to define, okay, what the heck is awareness? And I meditate and I um, have a teacher um um, Ann Farbman Brown, <clears throat> who introduced me to this woman, Sally Kempton, who's a great meditation teacher. I encourage anyone who wants to explore meditation, just Google Sally Kempton, and she has all sorts of resources. And um, I ended up talking to her and about how awareness isn't really something. I was looking for, okay, X plus Y equals awareness, how it's really you know, a place where we all get to, where we you know, kind of bring ourselves into the part of our minds that you know, witness and kind of not identifying with every thought and belief that we have about ourselves and, you know, getting your place to the point where you can witness your behavior and that that's what that's about. And um, it just started there. And it wasn't like I stopped for six years and was um, just doing this. I was, as I was, you know, was working, I was just digging deeper and deeper in and doing research. And then I finally had a process, which I thought, was helpful for people in which I could help them identify their goals, help them look at the way these um, money scripts were playing out in their lives. And I had it in my mind that I needed a big publisher. And so I held out for that. That probably took a couple of those years. And I got one. I got um, John Wiley and Sons. But it's interesting. You get a publisher and you've done all this work yourself. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, have have the book ready in two months. And you're like, what? (laughs) And as I was putting it together, I didn't like my book. Because I thought it was an interesting way to get people to look. It was new. And it was an interesting way to get people to look at money. But I'm like, this. I don't want this to be one of those self-help books that really talks a lot about the problem, but doesn't give people, okay, so now what do I do with that information? Right. And I was kind of stuck there. And um, someone told me to um, check out Dr. James Prochaska. And James Prochaska, Dr. Prochaska, is the leader in the science of behavior change. And I think the American Psychological Society has named him the fifth most influential psychologist in history, even ahead of Sigmund Freud. And what he did was one of the biggest research studies ever on how human beings actually change behavior. 
When he was growing up, his father was an alcoholic. Dr. Prochaska is probably about 80 now. So you can imagine in those times, there was a huge stigma against alcoholics. Alcoholism, there was a big tie to addiction being about character. So his father was judged as a bad person. Mm -hmm. And he knew his dad wasn't a bad Mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. And he knew that his dad um, had tried several times to stop drinking. And his, he couldn't, so he, he passed away when Dr. Prochaska was in high school. So that got him real curious about, okay, how do people really change behavior? So he studied what, are called, what he calls successful self-changers. Those are people who change behavior without professional help. And he identified when we change a behavior, we go through six very definitive stages. We use nine very definitive techniques. And the key to successful behavior change is knowing where you are in the change process and applying the right technique at the right time. How that translates into people speak is um, a lot of us will say we want to make a change. A lot of us will make that New Year's resolution to go to the gym on Monday, but it's broken by Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And that's because we jumped to the action stage, which Mm -hmm. is actually one of the final stages before we were ready, before Mm -hmm. we'd gone through the rest of the process. Um, an example of how that works is in my financial education. So anyway, Dr. Prochaska went on. I found him. He was at the University of Rhode Island at the time. I looked that up. I went to leave a message at 11 o'clock at night. The poor man actually answered his phone. He was in his office, and I was like, ah, I'm reading this book. I need your behavior change process. It's called the Trans Theoretical Model. I'm like, I need it in my book. He's like, I'll do anything you want if you stop talking. <laughs> so he went on to be one of my greatest mentors in my work and helped me with my book. My book came out and just, um, you know, kismet or whatever you have it. I started on the Today Show right when my book came out. And that um, is a popular show. It was uh, 2008. And it was, uh, for lack of a better term, good timing in terms it was primo recession. Mm-hmm. It was a big recession. It was a very big, emo- it was a very emotional recession. So I think it really resonated with people to hear money spoken about in this way. So a lot of people watched that show. And soon after that, I got contacted by the White House to create a behavior-based program for the historically black colleges and universities. And that's kind of when my light bulb went off. Oh, I've had this weird journey because I'm supposed to show people mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. you know, way this perspective about money. And then I, um, soon after that, Congress asked me to do research into the financial behavior of professional athletes. And in that journey, I met Ronnie Lott, who's an NFL Hall of Famer, who has a great um, foundation, All Stars Helping Kids. And I told him I wanted to make a financial literacy program, and he helped me do that. And I, with that, I had... Um, I went back to Dr. Prochaska and said, well, now you have to help me do this. And his group called Pro Change Behavior Systems did. So an example of how what we were talking about plays out in real time is in my program winning plays where um, kids are examining their goals. You might have a goal of wanting to take guitar lessons or something, but you're, you know, you're not doing anything in the money department that could help you do that. It's not, okay, so control your spending, do this, do that. It's, okay, you go to the mall every Saturday at 2 o'clock. At 2 o'clock, find a friend to help you to do something with to help you stay out of the mall. And help, helping relationship yeah. is actually yeah. a behavior change technique. So when you do things like that, then all of a sudden you'll notice 
the behaviors change mm-hmm. and you're doing things that are more aligned with your goal. But again, it's finding those right techniques and those right moves to do at the right time that really affect behavior. And last year, you were named to the prestigious ranks of the History Makers, um, which is the United States' largest African-American oral history collection. And this means that your story will be forever housed in the Library of Congress in D.C. I mean, what, that's, that's yeah, that's, cool. amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. What, is, what does this mean to you? Yeah. I'm really old. <laughs> <laughs> so you're older than the 20 years. There's not words. I mean, for this whole, yeah. all the good stuff, there's not words for, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> for this whole um, journey mm-hmm. that I'm on, um, I've learned that there is whatever, you know, we all call it different things, but there's something that's much, much bigger than all of us. And if you look at, you know, human beings, if you look at the planet, there's... Um, it's hard to imagine that all of this happened and, you know, each one of us happened without some kind of intelligence, higher form of intelligence at work. And it feels like it, this was its plan for me. So I just, you know, honor it, follow it and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of try to teach people about it through that. So I, I don't feel like any of this is like, you know, I got this award, I got this, mm-hmm. or I did that. This is just what's coming through me, and I feel it's my responsibility to share it. And I kind of leave it at mm-hmm. that. But, um... I mean, that's such a, that's just such an incredible, humble yeah. opinion and yeah. approach. And you truly are a champion for women and girls. And just beyond that big award, you're also on the advisory committee for the Gloria Steinem Endowed Chair for Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers. You're involved with Paradigm for Parity, and you're co-chair of Take the Leads, 50 Women in Finance. So, like, thank you, Stacey, for being such a champion for girls and women, because we need powerful women like you um, to make this world a better place. So that that it's your whole story is so incredible and I think I could go on for hours and hours but um Chelsea's telling me that we're running out of time so I think we need to go we always wrap up our podcast interviews with the same three standard questions we call them the three wise women questions and this is just so our listeners can get to know you personally a little bit better the first is what are you obsessed with right now personally oh (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm an entrepreneur starting my own media company, and I've um, learned a lot about living with financial stress <laughs> as an entrepreneur. Luckily, it's working out well. Um, teaching people how to um, manage the anxiety mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that comes up around money because it affects decision making, it affects life decisions. Um, one thing I'm obsessed with is I think we're, we are in the biggest one of the biggest economic shifts in history where we're moving from a capitalist model economy to a gig model economy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I yeah. just actually did a uh, speech at my son's school and I called it Zapitalism because I think capitalism really ends in Generation Z. So essentially, uh, quickly, what that means is that whole go to school, work hard, get a job, save for retirement model did not work. Yeah. For particularly, we saw that come out in the millennial generation because they got handed the worst economy mm-hmm. ever, mm-hmm. Yeah. student loan debt, paying for their own retirement, paying for their own health care. And I think a big um, testament to the millennial generation is what they gave us back was the sharing economy. Mm-hmm. So it's new rules, um, multiple streams of income within the next decade, 
um, people are going, the majority of the U.S. workforce is going to be entrepreneur, solopreneur, or freelance. So people need new tools. Yeah. Technology is really the game changer here in terms of you can, you know, manage businesses, you can build your credit, you can make, you know, money, you can invest money, you know, micro-investing apps like Stash, you know, building your credit apps like Self, um, managing your businesses apps like Joust. Um, and technology is also a great equalizer in that we learned that when you do something like apply for a mortgage, through a technology platform, it reduces bias in lending by 46%. So it's leveling the playing field in terms of taking that discrimination around race Mm -hmm. and gender out of it. So I see really important to me, my work right now is preparing people for the new rules of the economy. And just the way the generations have evolved. Millennials, I mean, we they could have been a very bitter generation, but instead they figured out the sharing economy. I think Generation Z is even smarter. It's so funny, we're talking about how things like gender and race affect your financial perspective. Generation Z, they don't gender identify. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was speaking to a girl who had a Jamaican father and a white mother, and she was like, I'm biracial, trans, this, that, the other. Right. I mean, they just, they're just right. blowing all yeah. this out of the water. And, and throwing the labels away. Throwing labels away. So I think us stepping into their energy, you know, because they're where we are now. It's a beautiful, right. beautiful thing and where we have to go. So um, helping people prepare for that and also using stories. Like we talked about women. If you look at women's financial history, all that negative conditioning, but somehow they've managed to control most of the world's wealth yeah. if we look at the financial history of blacks you know tremendous mm-hmm. wealth was created and taken away like with uh, president lincoln invent- gave freed slaves the freedmen's bank within 10 years they had amassed 60 million dollars in that bank they built communities schools what have you those deposits were literally taken from them to build yeah. the treasury annex building but somehow Women control the majority of the world's wealth. Blacks have created over a trillion dollars in buying power with black households over earning over $200,000 or more being the fastest income group. So there's something more, and I call it resilience. There's, you know, there's just bigger forces at work in us mm-hmm. and helping people tap into that and just having faith in that. Mm-hmm. I love your passion for your yeah. cause. And we were bonding before the interview talking about how as entrepreneurs we live our cause 24 24-